heads and let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are so grateful to be able to call you Father and to know that you listen to us as a father listens to children, which means to us, Father, that we can say the names of the people, the very names that identify the people that we care about, concerned about, that we love, that we want to see flourish and thrive, that we can say their individual names into your ear and it goes into your heart. And so we continue to pray, Father, not only for Shannon and those that are struggling with this virus, but those that are struggling in so many different ways with their body. The body is weak and it has become diseased in all the different ways in this fallen world that it can be. And we look to you, Father, and we look to your people for strength and for comfort. And we ask that you continue to give it in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, there is also inside of your bulletin an insert on, the, on one side of it. It says MPG, that is Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. And this like MPG means the miles per gallon with a gas uh, uh, powered car, how far you can go down the road with that car on a gallon of gas. This exercise in the back of memorizing, praying, and glorifying are activities to help you take the message of the sermon down the road a little bit further, too. It's not just for Sunday. It's for every day. We want to give you some things to press your mind into. And then on the other side of it, you're going to see on the title says, Big Deals. And that's the outline that we're going to use today as we go through the message. As you know, we are on a, uh, in a series about how to be a better decision maker based on some material that Andy Stanley has presented called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And I want to begin this morning with a story. There's, you've heard me tell this story, I think, some years ago. But it's a story about this fellow that wakes up one morning, and while he's laying in bed, his little, head, his little voice says to him in his head, get up and go down to the bank. So he gets up, he gets dressed, gets the car, goes down to the bank. And while he's there at the bank, the little voice says, why don't you draw all the money out of your checking account? He goes, okay. So he has all that money in his hand after he's drawn it out of his checking account. And the little voice says, get on a plane and fly to Vegas. And so he gets on the plane, he flies to Vegas, he's standing in the airport, and the little voice says, go to the biggest casino that you can find. And so he does it, and he walks into the casino, and that little voice in his head says, go to a roulette table. So he goes to a roulette table. He's standing there with all of this money, and the little voice says, put all of it down on black five. So he does it, they spin the wheel, the marble goes out there, and it lands on red 22. And the little voice says, Oops. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes my little voice is not all that smart. And this is why we need to talk about how we make decisions and, and the importance of decisions, as we've been saying all along. And this is the title of this series. Decisions are big deals. The bigger the deal, the bigger the decision. The bigger the decision, the bigger the deal. And one of the things that we've been talking about, the why decisions are big deals, is that decisions are like steering wheels. You are where you are today because of decisions. You decide your way into the future. That's the first reason. Decisions are, are, are like steering wheels. Your, your life follows the course of your decisions. And then secondly, personal decisions have public implications. Personal decisions have public implications. 
you are not the only one that is affected by your decisions, whether it's a good decision, wise decision, or a bad decision, unwise decision. Every decision that you make and that I make has the possibility, it has the power for collateral good and collateral blessing, and it has the power and the possibility for collateral bad and collateral damage to everyone that we love. And this is why we must learn to be disciplined decision makers, which means that we follow this scheme up on the screen. We pause, we question, and then we respond. We pause, we question, and then we respond. Learning to pause as a human being is one of the most important life skills that you can learn as a human being. There are times when you just have to pause in order to ask the right kinds of questions in order to respond in the right way. In fact, this is not just something that happens with Western culture or even modern man. This is historical. In fact, one of the, wi- in fact, one of the wisest men who ever lived, Solomon, in the Old Testament, wrote a little book called Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 19, he says, Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. And then these three words, haste, makes mistakes. Say it with me. Haste makes mistakes. We have to learn how to, to pause, not hit the fast forward or the play button, but when, we, but when we come to that fork in the road, that crossroad where decisions, especially big decisions, are needed, we have to learn how to hit pause. Now, to this actionable item of learning how to pause, You have to question, and I'm giving you five questions to help you make the best decision ever. Now, remember, at the heart of good decisions are good questions. To make a decision, you need information, you need angles, you need advice, you need wisdom, you need counsel. You need to be able to pause in order to ask the right kinds of questions that are going to give you the best information possible, and you're not always going to make perfect decisions. That's just part of what life is like in a fallen world as a fallen creature. But to make the best decisions that we can at the heart of good decisions are really, really great great questions. And I'm going to give you five. The first couple we've already looked at. Question number one is this. Am I being honest with myself? Am I being honest with myself? This is a question about the integrity of our heart. Are we selling ourselves on something? Or are we really considering the truthfulness and the honesty of our heart as we pursue this thing? Question number two is a legacy question. What story do I want to tell? Or better yet, think of it this way. It's your funeral or it's, it's a, a celebration of a holiday, everybody sitting around the table. What is the story? What are the stories that you want people to tell about you? Everybody lives on a trajectory that is made up of, of, of the decisions that they have made. Your, your life story is made up one decision at a time. And this is the legacy question. When you are faced with a fork in the road, a crossroad, and a big decision, what story do you want to tell? Now, this morning we're going to look at the third question. And I want to begin with, there is a comedian uh, by the name of Ron White. Uh, He lives up in the Austin area. Uh, His part of this story is kind of a morality story. He has been very honest in some of his comedy about some of his significant issues with drinking. And he tells the story in one of his, uh, one of his performances of, of being arrested for disorderly conduct, for being publicly intoxicated, and he says that he had the right to be silent, but he did not have the ability to. 
He had the right to be silent, but he did not have the ability to. Friends, you know, when we, when we think about, you know, some of the issues that come with, with being inebriated, there are a couple of reasons why when people become inebriated that they make really poor decisions. Reason number one, uh, norepinephrine is a, a natural chemical in the body that alcohol causes to act like a stimulant. And so when this norepinephrine begins to act as a stimulant, it increases impulsiveness, which means that all of a sudden and very quickly you make a decision, you make a decision without a lot of careful, considerate thoughtfulness. The second thing that happens is not only does it increase impulsiveness, but it decreases inhibition. The normal restraints that we have in terms of our behavior and understanding consequences gets removed. We're no longer in our lane. We take down the fences. We're driving all over the place. And it's at that point that we don't really care about consequences until the very next day. And as, you know, people come into their right mind, they ask, you know, I did what? I said what? I married what? I agreed to what? I mean, how did I get here? And, and the second reason is that alcohol temporarily impairs the activity in the prefrontal cortex where right there in the front of the brain, this is where we connect all of the dots. It's where we think rationally. It's where we begin to pick up on all of the cues that are around us. And what happens as people become drunk or become inebriated, they lose the ability to pick up and to make sense and to act rationally with these cues that are laid in front of them. And so instead of being quiet... They get loud. Instead of, of, of being still, they act. Instead of being cautious, they become brave. And this is really you know, the big reason why the Bible instructs us on the dangers of drunkenness and inebriation. You will not decide in the normal ways that you decide. You will do dumb stuff that you will regret. And again, this is one of the things that the Bible says. We'll go back to Solomon in Proverbs. Of the many places, Proverbs chapter 20, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, whoever is led astray by them, whose life is led astray by them, is not wise. I had the right to remain silent, but I did not have the ability to. That's what he said. So here's the point. Inebriated people cannot pay attention to the red flags. The red flags, you know, the thing that catches your attention and it's saying danger, 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 mayday, mayday, mayday. Inebriated people cannot pay attention to the red flags, but sober people choose to not pay attention to the red flag. Now, in both of these cases, both are very responsible for their decisions. And in either for whatever reason, whether you choose or can't, the effects can be devastating or on a person, on a person's life or the, the people around them that they love. Remember that your personal, private decisions, inner decisions, always have public implications. And this is especially dangerous for us humans in those moments when you're not sure why, but there is something that you just sense is not right. 
It's kind of like Spider-Man and the spider sense going off. Uh, there's a danger and you don't know what, but there's this sense on the inside that things are not right, you're not comfortable, there's something gnawing at you. And it's your conscience acting like an, a built-in warning system that is warning you that there is a violation that is imminent. That there is something that you need to pay attention to. And sometimes that, attention, that, that tension that you sense is something that only you sense. You're bothered even though all of your friends or all of the people around you do not seem to be bothered at all. You feel the tension. Nobody else does. You feel that, that tension on the inside even though everyone around you is you know, wanting to do something. And you decide, the danger is you're going to decide to ignore it and go along with everyone else. So the question is, what do all good disciplined decision makers do when they sense something is wrong? They pause, they question, and then they respond. They hit the pause button and they ask this third question, which is, what is this tension that is demanding my attention? What is this tension that is demanding my attention? Now, last week, friends, we looked at the not-so-great example from the life of David later in life when he's middle-aged. This morning, we want to go back to David's life. It's at, at a moment where he's in the early part of his life. He's not become king yet. And it's actually a story in his life where he is a hero. Now, you know the story of David. One day, the prophet Samuel shows up in Bethlehem. It's this little town just to the south of Jerusalem. He goes to the house of a fellow by the name of Jesse. And he says, I need to see all of your sons. And so Samuel, the great prophet, everybody respects him. Samuel shows up. You're going to do what he asks. Jesse gets all of the sons, and he parades them in front of, of Samuel. Now, the problem is, is that Samuel is going to anoint the next king. The problem is that there is already a king that is on the throne by the name of Saul. And so, as you know, this is kind of a dangerous, tension-filled situation with Jesse and all of his family. So he's parading the sons out in front of Samuel. Nobody, nobody is picked by God. Uh, you know, Saul had started off well enough, and it started out as a good king, and he had turned into a bad king, and now God is choosing to replace him. And finally, you know, Samuel says, do you have any other sons that are left? And Jesse goes, yes, he's the youngest, he's the shepherd, he's out in the field. They go get him, they bring him in, and he's the one that God chooses. And Samuel anoints him with oil, God is going to make him king. And the story of David's life is super, super incredible. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, he kills the giant Goliath. And it becomes such a popular thing. And the people are so amazed that this youth is the one that killed the great enemy of God's people that they begin to sing a song about him. He's an instant hero. It's at the top of the pop charts on the radio. And everybody's singing along. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7. Well, it's one of those songs that, you know, once you hear it, you can't get it out of your mind. And King Saul has heard it. He doesn't like it. He can't get it out of his mind. And so he decides that he, he needs to do something. It doesn't sit well with him. Because he has a son by the name of Jonathan, and Jonathan is next in line. And Saul knows he's going to have to do something to be able to ensure that David's not king, but that Jonathan is. And so he decides he's going to kill David. He's going to get rid of the problem. In fact, he even tells Jonathan, who is David's best friend, to do away with him. Jonathan will not do it. In fact, Jonathan is the one that tells David, you've got to run for your life. My dad, the old man, is trying to kill you. 
And David does this. And David is very charismatic. He's the one that everybody's singing about. He's the big hero. And he's able to draw all of these men, mighty men, to him. And he's out on the run. And these mighty men are going to be super loyal to him for the rest of his life. Now we speed forward to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Saul has returned to Jerusalem from chasing the Philistines. And he gets some info. He gets some intel that David and his group are near this this oasis called Ein Gedi. It's out in the middle of the desert. It's up kind of on the northern, northwestern end of the Dead Sea. I mean, you can't miss it. It's the only greenery in that whole area. Very, very famous place, even to this day, the pools and the caves. And so knowing that he's going to get rid of David, and he has the right intel, he gets 3,000 men and pursues David, and this is a gigantic army to try to kill one person. And David gets the intel while he and his men are at Ein Gedi. And they know that, that Saul is right there. So they get into the cave at the pool of Ein Gedi. And Saul, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Saul, nature calls. And Saul is going to heed the call of nature. And because he's the king, he's, you know, he's going to go into the privacy of the cave. And he goes into the very cave where David and his men are located. And you can just imagine what's happening here. The king comes in, and David and the men, they, they, they scoot to the back of the cave, and they do not dare to breathe. Saul might hear that and call them in, and they're trapped, and they have nowhere to go. And as Saul begins to take care of business, the men see an opportunity. Uh, David's men say to him in verse 4, this is the very day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're saying to David, here's your opportunity. It looks like everything is lining up for David to become king right then and there. David grabs his blade and he begins to creep up to assassinate Saul. He's thinking in his mind and all the men have been saying, kill the king, become the king. Kill the king, become the king. There is... There is this ample opportunity, this incredibly easy opportunity for you to make that happen. And as David is creeping up, something happens. And, and David, for some reason, does not assassinate Saul. What he does do is cut off the corner of his robe, which probably was a tassel or the, the zitzit, which was you know, a reminder of prayer and the oneness of God for Jewish men. And what we discover later is that David's conscience is just killing him. The men in the cave are all for this assassination. You know, let's get this thing done. Let's get it done so we can go home. We can get back with our families, get back to our fields, get back to our children. Everybody's going to understand it. Nobody's going to fault you. Everybody knows what kind of person Saul is. But David is paying attention to the tension that's inside of him. And he hits the pause button. And this is what we read a couple of verses later. David was conscience-stricken. That is, something inside of him is gnawing. Something inside of him is going, what are you doing? Danger, danger, danger. You know, having cut off the corner of his robe. And he gets to the back. And he says, the Lord... And he says to these very men who had been encouraging, the ones that did not have that tension the one where the temptation was to ignore the tension, the conscience, and to go along with it, he says to these very men, 
The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then you have the verbal exchange that David and Saul had, which was the text that Larry read just a couple of minutes ago. Now, there are a couple of dangers that are illustrated here. The first is this. As mentioned earlier, everyone is for the plan. Nobody seems to be bothered except David. David is with people that he trusts, people he has friendships with, people that are loyal to him. Everyone is going along with the plan. No one else is bothered but David. And David hits the pause button because there's a tension inside of him that is demanding his attention. And here's the second thing. We believe, as human beings, that we can predict outcomes. We think we know, but the bottom line is we do not know. I'll give you an example from last night. On Friday, somebody asked me, do you think that Texas will beat Arkansas? I said, absolutely. I'm not even, I'm, think, I'm thinking OU right now. And he said, well, you think they're going to win? They're going to win big? I said, yeah, they'll win by at least a touchdown. I thought I knew. I did not know. And this is why we are disappointed, Longhorn Nation, on Sunday morning. A disappointment is an expected outcome. And the bigger the unexpected outcome, the bigger the disappointment. And this is all that's happening right there in the back of this cave. Everybody's saying, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And everybody thinks that they can predict the outcome and that they, you know, all you got to do is kill Saul, kill the king, become the king, kill the king, become the king. Nobody's going to fall you. We all get to go home. Everybody's going to be happy. And nobody is thinking that there are 3,000 men out there that when they come out with Saul's body or Saul doesn't come out and the 3,000 men go into the cave to find out what happened, they are going to be trapped and they're going to be slaughtered. These 3,000 men have sworn to take care of the king. David, because he paused and there was this tension, this conscience-strickening moment, he was able to pause and to consider that he did not know for sure what the outcome would be if he went ahead and assassinated Saul. And for the rest of us, there's no guarantee that we too will get out of that cave alive when faced with the same thing. There's, there's, there's one thought that I want to leave you with. When it comes to making these big decisions, the third question, you know, is there attention demanding my attention? If something bothers you, does it seem right? Does it feel right? Does it sound right? Does not doesn't have you know, the sense of being right. Does it smell right? If something bothers you, let it bother you until you know why. Remember when we were talking about, you, you know, sometimes we don't tell the truth to ourselves because we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. Well, there are worse things than feeling bad about yourself. And one of those is, you know, a portfolio of, of collateral damage because of bad decisions. A second 
you know, a ramification or implication of, of not being honest is that we become serial bad decision makers. It's the same thing here. If something bothers you, don't run away from that. If it bothers you, let it bother you until you know why. And the reason is, is that the world is filled with a lot of intelligent people and a lot of good people that, are, that make poor decisions. If something is bothering you on the inside, let it bother you until you know why. I'll end with this story. There's a, a private plane that takes off, one propeller. There's three people. There's a pilot, there's a businessman, and there's a hiker. And somewhere along the line, the, the pilot senses that the plane is out of fuel and, and not working right, it's going to crash. He turns to the passengers and he says, we're going down, there's three of us, and there's only two parachutes. It's my plane. I'm, um, you, you know, and before he can finish, all the businessman hears is that there's two parachutes, and he says to the hiker and the pilot, I've got too much to live for, and he grabs one, and he jumps out of the plane. And the pilot says, you know, son, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the captain of this plane, the pilot of this plane. You take the parachute and jump. And the hiker says, no, 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 it's okay. There's two parachutes. The businessman just took my backpack and jumped out of the plane. The moral of the story is, it doesn't really matter how smart or successful you are. You can make bad decisions. And it is wisdom that says, pause, reflect and question before you act and before you do something. You have to pay attention to that tension that is welling up inside of you and telling you something is not right here. And like David, to be able to come to grips with what it is that's really bothering you, I'm about to do something that I consider to be a sin against God. And to make a good decision rather than a bad decision, to make a wise rather than an unwise decision that is not only going to bless you, but it's going to bless the people around you. What had David gone ahead and and, and had committed the assassination. His decision to do that had incredibly bad possible collateral damage for all of those people that he loved and who followed him and swore their loyalty to him in that cave. Let's, let's be the kind of people that know how to pause and to ask questions and to get the counsel, to get the angle, to get the information, to get the wisdom, to get, to get what it is we need to be able to make a decision where our consciences are not violated, where God is glorified, where the people around us are blessed, and we are living a life of integrity because we're honest with ourselves. And all of that is a witness to the wisdom of God in this life. Let's praise God and stand and sing together.